financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another Conspiracy Unlimited Plus episode for premium subscribers. And thanks, as always, for your interest in this podcast and your support. On this episode, the world's leading expert on near-death experiences reveals his journey toward rethinking the nature of death, life, and the continuity of consciousness. Dr. Bruce Grayson is a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. He served on the medical school faculty at the Universities of Michigan, Connecticut, and Virginia. He was co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies. A distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, he's received national awards for his medical research. His brand new book is After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. Dr. Grayson, welcome. How are you? 
I'm doing fine. And thank you for having me on your show, Richard. My pleasure. I find the most powerful stories with regards to near-death experiences come from former skeptics, hardened skeptics. Take me back 50 years ago before that fateful plate of spaghetti when you were a hardened skeptic. What what were you like back then with regards to near-death experiences? Well, I was uh, raised in a, in a scientific household where there was never any talk about anything uh, non-material. We just assumed the material world was all there was. It's not that we were opposed to spirituality or religion, it's just it just never came up in our family. So I went through college and medical school, assuming that, you know, the physical world is all there is, and when you die, that's the end. Um, and I wasn't opposed to anything uh, like near-death experiences. I just never heard of them. Um, and back in those days, in the 1960s and early 70s, no one else had either. But when I finished my uh, um, medical school program, I started training to be a psychiatrist. And just a few months into that, I was confronted by a patient in the emergency room who I had come to see because she had overdosed and she was totally unconscious. Uh, so I talked to her roommate to get information about what was going on in her life and then um, arranged to see the patient when she eventually woke up the next morning. When I went to the intensive care unit the next morning to see her, I introduced myself and she said, I recognize you from last night. And that kind of stunned me because I thought she was unconscious. So I said to her, you know, I thought you were asleep and couldn't see me last night. And she said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate. Well, that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine how that could be. The only way she could have done that is if she had left her body and come down to the other room where I was. And that made no sense to me. As far as I could tell, I was my body. So the idea of leaving your body with me just didn't, didn't compute at all. Uh, I was there, though, to do a job to help her with her confusion, so I didn't have time to deal with mine. So I just kind of pushed out of the way for a while and, and tried to help her with her suicidal thinking. But in the subsequent days after, after this happened, I just, I just could not believe that this was real. I thought maybe did I misinterpret things, did I mishear things, did someone play a trick on me? It just, it just didn't make sense to me. So where did that lead you in your your journey of discovery? What was the next step for you? Well, this made me very uncomfortable. Uh, I couldn't explain it all. Uh, and since it was just one isolated incident, I assumed something's wrong here. I just I didn't hear it right, or I misinterpreted it, or that someone's playing a trick on me. So I kind of pushed it out of my mind, or tried to, not very successfully, for a number of years. And then in 1975, I met Raymond Moody, um, who wrote a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experience and told us what they were supposed to be like. And when I met him and read his book, I realized this thing that my patient had talked to me about was not just one isolated event. It was part of a much larger syndrome. And I still couldn't understand it. But since it obviously happened, uh, it didn't seem scientific to me to just ignore it and pretend it didn't happen. So I proceeded to start to study them, try to collect as many cases as I could and trying to find out what this is all about. And now 50 years later, I'm still trying to figure it out. Can you tell me about Henry? <laughs> yes, actually not too long after that first incident, I was working with another patient who had been brought into the hospital after he shot himself in the head. Uh, he had been suicidal and um, lay down on his mother's grave and put a shotgun um, 
uh, rather his, his hunting rifle up to his chin and, and pulled the trigger and blew half of his face off. And I saw him when he had finished his plastic surgery reconstruction of part of his face, and he was transferred to the psychiatric unit where he was my patient. And I was surprised that he was not in the least suicidal. I tried to get from him what had happened, and he told me a story about after he shot himself, he found himself in a totally different realm. Beautiful pastoral scene, and there was his mother and father who had died a long time ago. And they came walking over to him, and they were happy to see him. And then his mother looked at him and said, Oh, Henry, now look what you've done. And then he woke up. Uh, and what he said to me was, now that I know where she is, I'm happy and I don't need to worry about her anymore. And in fact, he was no longer sad or suicidal and started talking to other patients about how meaningful life could be. Remarkable, remarkable. Um, your father was a, a chemist, correct? Yes, yes. And his experiments with, with Teflon, um, what, what did that have to do with all of this? Well, it was just an example for me of how he would go towards the unknown things and he would try all sorts of experiments, trying to use Teflon in different ways that no one had thought of before. And that was kind of a model for me for going after the unknown. Um, you know, in science, if you study things that we already know a lot about, you make incremental advances in what we know. But if you look at things that we can't understand at all, then that's where the major breakthroughs are. So he, he endowed me not only with a love for science and the scientific method, but also for curiosity and furthermore, a skepticism about what we think we know. Now skeptics are often, or what we call skeptics uh, here, are often people who are just um, debunkers who try to disprove things. But that's not what a skeptic is. A skeptic is someone who reserves judgment until he knows all the facts. And in fact, a skeptic's job when confronted with near-death experiences is not to try to disprove them, but to try to understand them, to pursue what we don't understand. Is the scientific method at all helpful with something like this, one might say, you know, is a is a spiritual uh, or supernatural event. Can you apply the scientific method to the study uh, of near-death experiences? I think you can. I, I think the scientific method is, is one of the best ways we've discovered to try to understand the world around us. And, of course, it's best used for physical things because we can measure them and quantify them. But we also use the scientific method to study things that can't be put in a test tube. For example, emotions, love, anger, sadness. Those aren't physical things that you can measure and quantify, but by studying how people react to these things, studying the effects of these emotions on people's lives, what they say, what, how their body reacts, and how they respond to people, we can learn about the emotion. And this doesn't apply just to non-physical things, it applies to physical things that we can't see or hear. For example, subatomic particles that are too tiny to, to perceive and don't live long enough to perceive, we can find out about them by shooting them through a, uh, a bubble chamber, which is a chamber filled with a liquid like liquid nitrogen, and watch the trail of bubbles 
as we send this invisible particle through the, the bubble chamber. And by looking at the trail of, of bubbles, you can learn about the particle's size and shape and, and uh, charge. And in the same way, you can apply the scientific method to, quote, spiritual things that we can't measure directly, but we can measure the after effects, so-called the, the bubble trail that they leave. Fascinating. I, I had not heard that before. One of the commonalities that you've discovered as you started to gather uh, these accounts to your collection mm -hmm. was, you know, we often think of the, the brain at death or nearing death being deprived of oxygen. And yet one of the things that you kept hearing that you found most puzzling was that people were reporting extreme clarity of thought and speed of thought. Tell me a little bit more about that. Right. That's almost universal among near-death experiences, that they report that during this NDE, near-death experience, their thinking was clearer and faster than ever before. And not only that, but their perceptions, their sight and their vision were much more vivid than ever before. And it's hard to understand how that can be if the brain is what is causing our thoughts and mediating our, our perceptions. So that suggests that there's something about thinking that occurs outside the brain or uh, certainly not caused by the brain. And I should say that near-death experiences aren't the only example of this. There's something called terminal lucidity in which people who have end-stage dementia, who haven't been able to communicate for years or recognize family, suddenly become completely lucid in the hours or sometimes days before death. And they recognize family and they carry on coherent conversations and the family may get excited thinking, oh, he's recovering now, but he's not. He ends up dying very shortly thereafter. And we have no medical explanation for how this can be. The brain cannot regenerate itself in situations like this. So here, too, it seems like somehow our thinking is divorced from the brain. This is surprising because in everyday life, it seems like the brain does cause thinking. The mind is basically what the brain does. When you get drunk, you don't think very well. Or when you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. So in everyday life, it does seem like the mind and the brain are the same thing. But in extreme circumstances, like near-death experiences, when the brain is not functioning very well, the mind seems to be able to dissociate itself from the brain and function without it. One of the things that, that appears at first to be a, a, a kind of a paradox is that although people report rapid thinking during this, this transitional process, if you will, is that the, at the same time, though, there is a sense of time slowing down. Talk to me about that. Yes, yes. Oh, that's, that's, that's a, a great puzzle for me as a, someone who was raised as a materialist. I think of time as being something that flows linearly like you know, our, our area does or space does, but near-death experiences almost always say that time was different in the near-death experience, that it seemed not to exist, or everything happened at the same time, or everything was done in eternity, and yet when they tell you what happened in the NDE, they describe it as if it's a sequence of events. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and when I ask them about this, you know, you say there's a sequence of events, and how can that be if there's no time? They just sort of shrug and say, well, it's a paradox here back in my body. But there, in the other realm, it made perfect sense. And I can't explain that. It's just, it's different. The world is different over there. You, you make an interesting uh, point in, in the book after about how this, uh, 
sense of time slowing down. And you give the example of Albert Heim, who, who uh, fell yeah. off a mountain, and how this may have actually played a role in Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Heim was, was a uh, geology professor at the Zurich uh, Polytechnical Institute. And decades before that, uh, as a young mountain climber, he had fallen in the Alps and fell about 60 feet, uh, repeatedly crashing against the rocky crag and getting bloodier and bloodier. And he wrote in his uh, autobiography that he had previously watched people fall, and it was terrifying to watch people fall. But when he himself was falling, it was blissful. And he could stand back sort of from his body and watch his body repeatedly hitting the rocks. And yet he wasn't feeling pain, he was feeling bliss. And he said that time seemed to slow way down for him so that in the few seconds it takes to fall that distance, he had time to think about how he needed to change, switch his body around so he would land in the snow rather than on the rocks. He had time to think about whether he should take his glasses off so they wouldn't break. He was thinking about people he loved who were left behind. He had a lot of time to think while in his few seconds he was falling. Now, Heim was so impressed by this that he quickly started asking other mountain climbers and found 30 other cases just like his, which he published in the yearbook of the Swiss Alpine Club in 1892, our first collection of near-death experiences. He was furthermore so impressed that he had talked to all his classes about this near-death experience. And in the early years of the 20th century, one of his students was a teenage Albert Einstein. And he told Einstein and the others that as he was falling, the faster he fell, the slower time went. And 15 years later, Einstein published his theory of relativity that says that at extreme speeds, time slows way down. That's remarkable. Um, there's also a, a sense of timelessness uh, that, that people that, yes. that have NDEs, NDEs uh, discuss. Talk to me about uh, timelessness. Right, right. Well, that's a funny word because, you know, a lot of things people say about a near-death experience, um, they say it can't be put into words. So we say, great, tell me about it. So we're, we're saying to them, go ahead and destroy it by putting it into words because we need to understand this. And they will say that they don't really know how to describe timelessness. Some people say there just wasn't any time there. Or some people say there was some type of time, but it wasn't anything like the time we have here. Um, or some people say, I was still aware that there was time back on Earth, but I wasn't part of it. And these are all, of course, metaphors because they can't really put what happened into words. Our, our language just doesn't allow for this. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. 
They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal, but if you want more... Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. It's interesting you point out, or one of the things that you discovered is the the sense of time slowing down, uh, and yet uh, clarity of thought and quick thinking. That seems to occur in people who are having their near death experiences are unexpected, like a a a car crash, as opposed to. Someone who is uh, maybe on their deathbed, they have a fatal disease, they are, they are anticipating death. Why do you think that is? Right. Well, I can make a guess just based on uh, the functions that, that slowing down time serves. When you're in a, an accident and you're about to be killed, it helps you to be able to slow down your time and speed up your thinking so you can figure out how to escape dying how to uh, rearrange things so that you won't be crushed or whatever's going to happen to you. Whereas if you are expecting to die over a long period of time, you don't have that, that sense of crisis. I need to do something right now. Um, so these are just my speculations. We have no way of, of really proving any of these things. Another aspect that the, that's fascinating with NDEs is heightened sensory perception or um, vivid colors, sometimes even uh, interesting tastes or odors. Tell me about those. Yeah, yeah. Many people um, will say that they saw colors in the near-death experience that don't exist in our earthly world, or they heard sounds that they've never heard before. Um, And again, they they can't put it into words, but they say uh, it was just so much more vivid than anything we've seen or heard here. Um, and they can't describe it. Some have tried to uh, paint um, what they saw. Uh, some have tried to compose, compose music, and they all say that you, you can't do it. They say it's like trying to draw an odor with a crayon. You just, you just can't do it. Interesting. One of my, uh, my favorite movies, my favorite Albert Brooks movies, is Defending Your Life. And uh, he has a he dies in a car accident, and of course we we see him in the afterlife, preparing for uh, another incarnation. And he goes through a life review, and he has a defense attorney with him. I think is played by Rip Torn. Right. Rip Torn. Yes. Have, you, have you seen the movie? Yes. yes, I have. It's very funny. Right, right. And so that idea of a life review. I mean, that's that seems to be based in in experience with people that have NDEs, right? 
That's right. That's right. And many people who have near-death experiences, I'd say roughly half, will report reviewing their lives. What, what do they say happens during that process? Well, they describe it in various ways, but they generally say that they were able to see everything that happened in their lives. Um, and they describe in minute detail things that they couldn't have remembered in, in their normal everyday life. And they say, I remember things that I had not remembered in, in 40, 50 years. Beyond that, however, many of them say that they relived these events not only through their own eyes, but from the eyes of other people around them who were being affected by what happened. And this can be profoundly transformative for them. Let me give you an example of this. One fellow named uh, Tom Sawyer, this, that's his real name, um, he had a near-death experience when he was in his 30s when a truck he was working under uh, slipped off the, the jacks and, and crushed his chest. And he remembered his entire life, including one incident that occurred when he was a hot-headed teenager driving this truck down the street, and a drunk man ran out in front of his truck. He almost hit him, but managed to stop, but was so enraged that he rolled down the window and started yelling at the man. And the man, I suppose because he was drunk, reached in the window and slapped Tom across the face. And that was enough for this hot-headed teenager. He got out of the truck and started beating the man senseless and left him as a bloody heap in the median and then took off in his truck. Well, when he had his life review, he relived that entire incident, not only through his own eyes, but from the eyes of the drunk man as well. And he got to see what his face, Tom's face, looked like when he turned red and started getting angry. And then he felt 32 blows of, of Tom's fists in his face and his chest. He felt his uh, nose getting bloodied, his, his teeth going through his lower, lower lip, all through the perspective of his victim. And he said, you know, this is when you go through this in your life review, you realize we're not isolated people. We're all part of the same thing. And what you do to somebody else, you're really doing it to yourself as well. And this leads many of them to adopt basically the golden rule that you should treat other people the way you treat yourself. But it's not just a rule we should try to obey. They see it now as this is the way the universe works. Right, and these, these behavioral changes in people, the, these are lifelong, right? This is not just oh, yes. Uh, yes. A, a temporary situation. Um, right. But but often people who who have NDEs and undergo this kind of transformation, personal transformation, it can cause difficulty in in their relationships, right? Because yes, they're 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 whole. They're not the same person. Well. In many ways, they are the same person, but their attitudes and their values uh, may be changed. Uh, and, you know, if you led a, uh, you know, a spiritual life beforehand, it may not make much of a difference. But um, if you've led a life that's based on competition or, you know, getting ahead at other people's expense, those concepts just don't make sense anymore. And more disturbing is people who were in a violent profession, um, where you basically make your living by hurting other people. And let me give you an example. Is one fellow I knew, Steve Price, who was a, always a schoolyard bully as a, as a teenager. And then he entered the Marines. And his career, was, his life was, goal was to be a career Marine. And he ended up being a sergeant leading a platoon in Vietnam and was shot in the chest and had shrapnel throughout his lungs. And he was evacuated to a medical hospital in the Philippines. And during the operation to clean out his chest, 
uh, he had a near-death experience, a very elaborate, beautiful one. And when he woke from that, the idea of killing somebody was so abhorrent to him, he just couldn't imagine it. He was sent back into the field and tried to lead his platoon, but found he could not shoot his rifle. So he ended up leaving the Marines early and came back to the States and retrained as a, as a medical technician. And I've heard similar stories from police officers who, after a near-death experience, couldn't shoot. I even interviewed one uh, mafia pers- person uh, who ended up leaving the mafia and training us as a counselor. Oh, that's remarkable. This happens repeatedly with people, which really, as you can imagine, can wreak havoc with their families yes. and their friends. Uh, tell me about this study you did in conjunction with the uh, cardiology department. Um, 1,600 patients, uh, this study. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, why did you undertake this study and, and uh, uh, what did you find? That, that's a great question, uh, Richard, why I undertook it. A lot of this research is done by collecting stories from people who come to us and say, let me tell you about my experience. And that raises the question of whether that's a biased sample or whether these people who talk to us about their NDEs are typical of people who don't choose to talk to us. So if I wanted to collect an unbiased sample of everyone who came close to death and the most readily available one to me was people who were admitted to the hospital with a cardiac arrest whose hearts had stopped. And so I admitted everyone in the cardiac care unit. And I, as you said, a couple of, uh, it ended up being about 1,600 people it turned out that many of them did not have cardiac arrests, but I looked at what they experienced during the time they were unconscious. And I found that about 10% of those whose hearts had actually stopped did have a typical near-death experience. And only 1% of those whose hearts had not stopped, or at least we don't know that they stopped, reported an NDE. And as I expected, they were not exactly like the ones that the people told me who came to me voluntarily about their NDEs. And the biggest difference is that these people I talked to in the hospital often weren't as verbal about their experience. They were less willing to share the experience and they didn't have the vocabulary. The ones who choose to come to me were a select group who wanted to tell about it and had the words to do so. These are people from various cultural uh, backgrounds and those they they seem to apply their their culture use that cultural filter in describing so for example we hear things about you know a a long tunnel or walking towards a light tell me about the differences uh in in that yeah yeah well interestingly if we look at near-death experiences from different cultures around the world and even going back to ancient days we have lots of accounts from ancient greece and rome the phenomena they report are basically the same, a white light, a, a tunnel, and so forth. But how they interpret that will be uh, influenced by their cultural background. For example, many people report a warm, loving being of light that makes them feel welcomed and loved. And among Westerners, we often assume that's God or Christ, whereas people from Hindu and Buddhist cultures do not use those terms. They don't. It, expected to be something like that. The tunnel, many people report going through a long, dark enclosure to get from this physical world to the other realm. And in Western countries, we often describe that as a tunnel, whereas people who grew up in areas that don't have a lot of structures like tunnels are more likely to say, I went into a cave or I fell into a well. 
Uh, I interviewed one person here in the States uh, who was a truck driver, and he described it as, I got sucked into this long tailpipe. So they use whatever metaphors they have available to them to describe the same phenomenon, basically. Has the advent of anesthesia uh, played any role in uh, the reporting of NDEs? In other words, does the use of anesthesia, does it uh, perhaps inhibit the end or, me- or the inhibit the, the memory of an NDE? Well, we don't have a lot of data to compare uh, with that, but I certainly have collected uh, literally hundreds of cases of near-death experiences from people who were under general anesthesia. So it certainly doesn't stop people from having near-death experiences. Um, now, there has been a great increase in the near-death experiences we're hearing. And it's hard to know whether that's due to anesthesia or whether uh, we have better resuscitation techniques now or whether people are just more willing to talk about them now than they used to be. What about the sensation of leaving the body? What do people tell you about that? Well, it's often one of the earliest parts of the near-death experience. And in fact, some people don't have much more than that. They sense they leave their bodies. They look down and see what's going on with the body. And at some point, they just go back in. Others then will then go on to another realm and have other uh, experiences. Um, Now, it's easy to dismiss this as a hallucination or a fantasy that you left your body. But many of these people describe things that are going around on around them that they couldn't possibly have seen, like that first patient I mentioned who seemed to see me talking to her roommate in a different room. But that was not a case that really impressed me tremendously because I didn't understand it. And I didn't know about near-death experiences at the time, so I didn't know to ask her other questions. But about 30 years later, I met a 55-year-old truck driver who had emergency quadruple bypass surgery. And in the operation, he left his body and said he looked down and saw his surgeon flapping his arms as if he was trying to fly. And he demonstrated by wiggling his elbows. And at this point, I had been a doctor for like 30 years, and I couldn't imagine that this really happened. I'd never seen or heard anyone do that. You don't see doctors on TV doing that. So I assume this is a hallucination brought on by the anesthesia. But he insisted it was really happening. So with his permission, I talked to his surgeon. And the surgeon, to my surprise, said, yes, that really happened. I developed this unique habit. I let my assistant start the operation while I'm getting gowned and gloved. And I walk into the operating room, all sterilized. And I don't want to risk touching anything that's not in the sterile field. So I put my hands where I know they won't touch anything flat against my chest. And I point things out to my assistant with my elbows rather than my fingers so I don't touch anything. And he demonstrated and looked just like what the patient told me. Hmm. So, you know, it, it can't be just a fantasy or hallucination if what they're saying is accurate. Uh, you developed what's called an NDE scale, I guess, about uh, 40 yeah. years ago. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in the early days of near-death research, very few people had heard about these events. So there were a handful of people at different universities working by themselves to study these phenomena. And we didn't have any consistent protocols, any consistent set of questions to ask. So some people who were interested in thought processes would ask about time speeding up, time slowing down and thought speeding up. 
And other people who are interested in religious aspects would think, talk about um, God and about heaven and hell. And others would focus on how it affected them. So I figured we don't know that we're all talking about the same experience. So we need to find a consistent set of questions that we would all ask the same questions to patients. And through a long process of collecting everything that had been written about near-death experiences and feeding these back to experiencers and then to researchers and then to experiencers and back to researchers, we eventually whittled the list down to 16 questions that would define and in fact measure how deep the near-death experience was. And it quickly became kind of the gold standard in, in medical care, and it was, it's been used now in, in hundreds of cases of studies all around the world. It's been published in two dozen languages. So it's been useful in making sure that we're all talking about the same phenomenon in our research. It's not helpful, though, in talking to an individual patient, uh, because you don't want to tell a patient who doesn't score highly on this scale that they didn't have an NDE when they were obviously very spiritually transformed by this close verse with death. So it's helpful for research, but not for individual care. Can you give me uh, some of the, those questions on the, uh, the survey? Well, it includes things like time slowing down or stopping. It includes thoughts going fast. It includes the life review, a tremendous feeling, feeling of peace and well-being, uh, a sense of being out of the body, a sense of seeing deceased loved ones or deceased uh, spirits, uh, seeing religious spirits, um, a sense of leaving the body, and at some point making a decision to come back or being told to come back to earthly life. Does anyone, or have you uh, encountered anyone who's had an NDE where it wasn't a positive experience? Uh, maybe it was sort of, they were describing metaphorically what appeared to be some level of, of, of hell. Uh, yes, yes. When we first started doing this research, we didn't hear about any of those, and we assumed all near-death experiences were, were pleasant, in fact, blissful. But after a number of years, we started realizing that wasn't the whole story, that there are people who have unpleasant experiences. So uh, Nancy Evans Bush and I did a study trying to collect as many of these as we could and we collected 50 cases over a period of years, uh, which gives you an idea of how hard they are to find. And we found that there are really three types of unpleasant experiences. The rarest type were the ones that sounded like a prototypical hell. There was fire and brimstone and demons. And we only heard these from people who had a, a religious background that would make you believe in that sort of thing, like you know, Roman Catholics or uh, fundamentalist Protestants. We never heard that from someone who wasn't raised in that type of a culture. A larger group were people who found themselves in a black void with nothing, no sound, no sight, and they thought they would be in this realm for eternity, just their own consciousness and nothing to relate to, which is terrifying for Westerners. However, I've also talked to people who were raised as Hindus in Asia who had this same type of black void experience, and they experienced it as blissful, as nirvana. So again, your, your cultural expectations influence how you interpret these uh, phenomena. But by far the largest group of negative or unpleasant experiences sound just like the typical blissful ones, but they're experienced in terrifying terms. People may say that they found themselves being thrust down a tunnel, a tunnel at breakneck speed and 
and seeing this blinding light. And they're desperately trying to fight it. And no matter what people report in an NDE, one of the consistent factors is you're not in control. And if you're the type of person that needs to be in control, this can be a terrifying experience. And many people report being terrified by the NDE, trying to fight it, trying to stop it, and eventually getting exhausted and giving up. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes a typical blissful experience. It, it seems that what's unpleasant about these near-death experiences is not the phenomena itself, but your, your resistance to it, you're trying to fight it. Because as soon as they stop trying to fight it, it becomes blissful. Uh, now we don't know how common these unpleasant experiences are. Most people who have studied this think it's between one and 5% of near-death experiences. But it seems to be much harder for people to talk about these experiences, to share them. So there may be a lot more out there that we just don't know about, that we never hear about. Speaking of uh, terrifying experiences, on the eve of a presentation you were going to make before the American Psychiatric uh. Association, you had, uh, it wasn't an NDE, but it was a terrifying dream. No. Help me make sense of that. What, what yeah. happened? Yeah, yeah. This was very early on in my career when, when almost nobody had heard about near-death experiences. And I somehow got permission from the American Medical Association to present something about near-death experiences to their national conference. Um, and I was very young and inexperienced, and I was uh, a little terrified of this. And the night before my presentation, I had a dream. I was lying, I was asleep, and I dreamt that I was expanding and I left the earth and I was going out into the universe and just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I realized that I wasn't getting bigger because my body parts or my molecules were increasing in size. They were just getting farther and farther apart from each other. And my molecules were separating, allowed me to, to expand into the universe. And I started getting terrified at that because it seemed like I had no bodily integrity anymore. And I was desperately trying to get back to some coherent space again. And I woke up then sweating and, and terrified. I knew it was only a dream, but it was still a terrifying experience. And the way I interpreted that to myself as a young psychiatrist is, I'm terrified of going too far out on a limb with this near-death stuff and losing my integrity before this solemn group of, of uh, academicians and, and scientists. So I kind of toned down my presentation the next day. And the reason this is important to me is that decades later, I had a similar experience in another context. I was just relaxing one afternoon and I was lying down and I had the experience of expanding into the universe. And again, I was just getting, my molecules were getting farther and farther apart. And I recognized it at the time as the same dream I had had decades earlier. But this time it wasn't annoying, it wasn't frightening. It was blissful being out in the universe, exploring what's going on out there. And I think that's the difference that so many years of studying near-death experiences has made for me. It's made me very, very comfortable with the unknown, with not knowing what I'm studying, but just exploring what's out there. Things that would have terrified me decades earlier are now exciting for me and very comfortable. You had to make a decision. Um, you were in a... Um a position as a psychiatrist in uh, at Michigan University and the chair of the department there basically told you you had to choose to continue your research into NDEs or your position 
So tell me about how you worked through that that decision. Right. I, I had gone to Michigan because it was a, a great research university, and I wanted to get more training in, in research protocols, and I, I did get that. It was a wonderful place for that. But it was also very limited in, in what they wanted you to study. And I was publishing papers um, in major mainstream medical journals about near-death experiences, and that was upsetting my chairman, who told me that that would not count towards tenure. The only thing that mattered was doing research with things you could measure. And if you can't measure, if you can't put it in a test tube, then we don't want to hear about it. And he said that if I continued doing this work, I would not get tenure and would have to leave. So I could make a choice between continuing to study this stuff and having to leave or going back to more mainstream uh, medical research and staying. And I thought long and hard about that. I had a young family at this point. I didn't want to uproot them and, and try to find a new job. And yet, it really felt intellectually dishonest to just turn my back on near-death research and pretend it didn't happen. Um, so I ended up leaving there and going to another university that was uh, more open-minded in which I could uh, pursue this research. One of the, the, the aspects of the NDE that uh, fascinates me the most is the out-of-body experience. People mm, physically yeah. feel, or, or they feel as if they've left their body, they, they are able to observe their body, perhaps lying on the ground, being attended to, and so forth. Uh, can you share me one of the more compelling uh, anecdotes of someone who's had an out-of-body experience in during an NDE? Yeah. Well, what I mentioned previously... Uh, the truck driver who had quadruple bypass and saw his, his surgeon wiggling his elbows is one of the most dramatic for me because I was able to personally um, confirm that with, with the surgeon. Um, but I've got literally dozens of others with similar uh, circumstances. One woman who was undergoing uh, abdominal surgery left her body during the operation and wandered off down the hall where she found her mother in a waiting room and to her great surprise, her mother was smoking a cigarette because her mother was not a smoker. Uh, after the operation was over, she confronted her mother with this and said, I, I saw you smoking in the waiting room. What, what's that all about? And her mother said, well, I was just so nervous about your operation that I borrowed a cigarette from someone else there and smoked it. The whole thing would calm me down. So this is, again, something that the patient could not have expected to see, and yet she did, and it was accurate. I've got other examples of patients who were uh, in an operation that was going badly, and the surgeon and the anesthesiologist working on her did not agree on what to do with, with the, the, the crisis. And they, the patient said, I left my body, and I saw them arguing, and they were swearing. And I couldn't believe that they were using these horrible words in the middle of an operation. And later on, she confronted her surgeon and her anesthesiologist with this. And they acknowledge that everything she said was true. So we have case after case of people who claim to have left their bodies and saw and heard things that they could not have imagined, but were actually accurate. Actually, one person, uh, Dr. Jan Holden at the University of North Texas, studied about 100 of these cases, and she found that in 92% of them, there was completely, they were completely accurate. Remarkable, remarkable. Uh, the late uh, brilliant neurosurgeon, Dr. Wild, uh, Penfield, uh, Wilder yes. Penfield, uh, from McGill University, uh, was said to have been able to, um, I guess, 
stimulate a, an out-of-body experience with mild electrical currents in different lobes of the temporal lobe and so forth. Uh, yeah, yeah. How, how, does, how do you feel about that? Because the, the idea that you can, I guess, artificially create an, an OBE, how does that uh, affect your thinking on this arena? Well, I, I get excited about ideas like this because I, I do want to try to understand them. Um, and whether or not uh, electrical activity in the temporal lobe is associated with a near-death experience doesn't necessarily mean it causes it. It may mean that activity in that part of the brain allows this to happen, allows you to leave your body and so forth. But the fact is that um, Penfield, in his, in his research, studied about 2,000 of these patients in whom he stimulated the temporal lobe. It's mostly the right temporal lobe where people report this. And of those 2,000 patients, two, only two, reported something even remotely like a near-death experience. And one said simply, I feel like I'm leaving, I'm half in and half out. And the other one said something like, it feels almost as if I'm about to leave my body. And those were seized upon by later uh, neurologists and neurosurgeons to mean you can reproduce the near-death experience, or at least the out-of-body experience, by stimulating the temporal lobe. And many people have tried to do that and reported this happening. But if you actually look at what they report happens, it's nothing like an out-of-body experience. People report all sorts of bodily illusions, their legs getting shorter or longer, uh, falling off the table when they're really not. And they may report seeing their body outside the body. They're still in their body looking at an image, a mirror image of themselves somewhere else. Now, contrast that with a real out-of-body experience where people don't feel they're in their bodies looking out, but they're in that other body outside looking in at their physical body. And unlike these stimulated experiences, they can move around the area, they can see things accurately, and these illusions brought about by stimulating the temporal lobe never include accurate perceptions of what's going on. What about chemical changes in the brain? Um, have, have you been able to measure anything there? For example, the release of, of DMT? Yeah, no, we have not. We have not been able to do that. Um, there's a lot of speculation about this type of thing because a lot of psychedelic drug trips have some similarities to NDEs. So, of course, we speculate about what's going on with this. And people have wondered about endorphins, which are the drugs that cause the runner's high make you feel blissful. They've wondered about uh, DMT, dimethyltryptyline. Um, they've wondered about the serotonin system, which is where things like psilocybin work. But all these drugs, if they are produced in the brain, um, are produced in such small amounts and for such brief periods of time in an area that we don't even know to look at in the brain, that's virtually impossible with our current technology to test whether any of these hypotheses are true or not. Now, when you look at uh, the way people describe near-death experiences and the way they describe psychedelic drug trips, they use a lot of the same words. So it sounds as if you're reproducing the near-death experience with these psychedelic drugs. But if you talk to people who've had both psychedelic drug trips and near-death experiences, they say it is not the same thing. They say we just have so many words to describe what happened, so we use the same words. And they said, as an example, 
If you ask someone who's been in combat to describe what they saw and heard and felt in the middle of a battle, and then ask someone who was watching a war movie what he saw and heard and felt watching the movie, they'll use a lot of the same words. But nobody would confuse the two experiences. One is a real experience, and one is a simulation of it. And they don't produce the same effects. And they say the psychedelic drug trips are the same way. They sort of mimic some parts of the near-death experience, but nobody would think it's the same experience. So you, you write in the book that the, the near-death experience raises a lot of difficult questions about our understanding of the mind and the brain and I suppose consciousness and what, what that all means and how they all interact. Right. Have you come up with any satisfactory answers? Um, I have not, um, but I started off this, this whole career uh, with a strong materialistic bias, convinced that the mind is what the brain does and all our thoughts come from the brain. And I just can't believe that anymore. There's just too much evidence that that is not true. That there are times when the mind seems to be functioning quite well when the brain is not. Uh, does that mean that the mind is, is not physical at all? Well, that's the most obvious solution, but it's plausible that some other part of the body is involved in our thinking. Um, we have no idea what. Uh, some people have wondered whether different parts of the brain that we can't measure are involved. Um, some people have speculated that the nerves in the gut are responsible for some of this. But these are pure speculations with actually no evidence to support them. A more likely solution is that the mind is somewhere out there and the brain in normal everyday life functions as a receiver of these thoughts and a filter of the thoughts, much the way a cell phone receives radio signals from outside, filters out the ones that aren't relevant to the message you're trying to get, and just takes one in, in the phone call you're trying to receive and translates it into sound waves so you can hear it. And the same way they say the brain may be receiving thoughts from the mind, filtering out those that aren't relevant to your immediate survival and just lets in the ones that are important and translates those into signals your body can understand. This is not a new idea. Hippocrates wrote about this 2,000 years ago. He said the brain is the interpreter or the messenger of the mind. And it shouldn't be surprising if we think that the brain sort of filters out stimuli and just lets in those that are important because that's what our body does. You know, your eyes don't let in all the things that are there to see. It only lets in a small fraction of the visible, of the wavelength that, that we can see. Those that are important to our survival in the physical world. Similarly, our ears don't let in all the possible sounds out there. It filters out those that are not immediately necessary for our physical survival. And just lets in a small range of frequency that are important to us. And you can argue the same way that the brain receives all these thoughts from the mind but you don't need to think about deities and about deceased loved ones in order to find food and shelter and a mate in the physical world. So it sort of filters those out and just lets in those thoughts that are important for navigating around the physical world. And it's only when the brain starts fading away that this filtering mechanism dies down and lets in all sorts of other consciousness and uh, contents. That may be one of the most uh, succinct explanations I've ever heard as as to what's going on here. 
Um, so where are you now in your journey from uh, a skeptical materialist to, uh, well, where are you now? Uh, do you believe in, you know, beyond the NDE, do you believe in an afterlife? Well, I am still a skeptic. I'm still a scientist. And I understand that everything we know we're perceiving through our senses and we know our senses are fallible. So I don't completely trust anything I think I know. The evidence seems to point to me that there is something beyond death, that death is not the end of our existence. I've seen too many cases where people had communications with deceased loved ones in their near-death experiences and brought back information they couldn't possibly have known. But I think there is something beyond death. What it is, I have no idea. Again, near-death experiences say that they can't describe what happened. So any concrete descriptions they give us, we know are going to be distortions. So I don't expect to know what's going on uh, in the afterlife, but I suspect there probably is one. After a skeptical scientist's journey to understand life, death, and beyond. Dr. Grayson, thank you so much for this. How do people get a copy of the book? Um, you can, it's on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, uh, on any place that, that sells books, uh, you can find it now. Um, and you can also go to my website, www.brucegreyson.com and there are links on that website to how to order the book as well as other information about near-death experiences in general. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. 